to remind you, we're, we're doing a series through the gospel according to Luke. It'll probably take us a couple of years to get all the way through. But Luke is, is this carefully researched first century document that um, follows the life and ministry of Jesus Christ using eyewitness accounts, using early documents uh, to, to compile a very carefully put together uh, uh, gospel account. Gospel means good news. Luke writes with a very particular purpose in mind. He, he, he compiles this gospel in order that his readers, whether they're ancient or they're modern, may have certainty concerning the things that they've been taught. He wants them to know the story about Jesus, what, what he came to do to undo sin and all the deadly consequences of sin through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection, um, that, that this is something that you can build your life on. This is something that's sure and stable and steadfast. In Luke chapter 3, we just finished chapter 3 last week, we met for the first time the man Jesus. Really, for the first two plus chapters, we've encountering, encountered people before the birth of Jesus and uh, while he's in the, uh, the womb of the Virgin Mary. We've met him as a, as, a, as a newborn baby and as a boy. And in chapter 3, we meet him for the first time as, as a fully grown 30-year-old man. There was a beautiful moment at the end of chapter 3 where Jesus is baptized Jesus came to the, to the earth to identify with and to lead his people, and he leads them in baptism. This is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, and there's a, a beautiful, affirming moment where the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in, in, in the form of a dove, and the heavens open, and, and the Father, God the Father, speaks to Jesus before he's begun any of his work, before he's you know, put his hand to the plow of public ministry, and he says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Again, God filling the man Jesus with his power and his presence, God affirming his unique love for his own son before Jesus begins his work. But here in chapter four, the story takes a turn. It leads in a direction that we might not think makes sense following this very warm fatherly moment that Jesus experiences in chapter three. That being said, Ali. Luke 4, 1 to 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and... On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us again. Father, thank you for this word from Luke chapter 4. Father, would you open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear what you are saying to your church today. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus, before he publicly enters into ministry, is tested. 
he is tempted by the devil. This is what we're seeing here in this chapter. During this temptation, during this trial, during this testing, we're able to see what Jesus is really made of. This isn't an easy time for Jesus. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. But the impression that we get from this account in in Matthew's gospel and Mark's as well is that this is a rigorous, trying, exhausting ordeal. This is is pulling and testing at uh, Jesus in ways that he's never experienced. And this is being done to test him. Or better, it's being done to prove Jesus, to, to show what he is capable of. Before we use metal in a construction project, whether we're building a building or a bridge or something like that, the metal should be tested. It's tested for, for tensile strength and, and a couple other things. And, it, and that's just trying to figure out what is the maximum stress that this metal can go uh, under before it breaks. The more important job the metal is going to be employed in, the more intense, the more rigorous the testing really should be. Again, the more important the task, the more strenuous the testing should be. And in verse 1, if you look at it there, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The wilderness has actually already come up a couple times in Luke. And again, it's this biblical image of death, of of dryness, of weariness, of rejection, of of being cast out. And throughout this section, we're going to see a lot of parallels actually between Jesus and other biblical figures who spent time in the wilderness. Uh, Uniquely, uh, Adam, the first man. Uh, Israel, God's chosen people. Those are two characters that have spent a lot of time in the wilderness. Throughout the Bible, we actually see that Adam and Israel, the nation, they're called God's son. It's a title that's used for them. They are God's son. They're not eternal. They're not divine. They're not like Jesus in that way, but they do enjoy a unique and special relationship with God himself. But the wilderness is the place where Adam ended up. God sent Adam and his wife Eve out of paradise, out of the Garden of Eden, into the wilderness because of their sin. In paradise, in the garden, Adam and Eve were tested. They were tempted by the devil, and they failed. They chose themselves. They chose their own desires instead of pleasing God. The wilderness is also the place where Israel, God's son, was sent out into. They were tempted by sin. They, they refused to obey and to trust the promises that God made to Abraham, And they were were not able to enter into the promised land, this rich and fertile land that God had for them. And instead, they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And here in Luke chapter 4, we find the true Son of God, Jesus Christ, being sent out into the wilderness as well. Look at verse 2. For 40 days, Jesus is in the wilderness, and he's tempted by the devil. But Jesus, unlike Adam and unlike Israel, he's not being sent into the wilderness for his own faults because of something that he did wrong. Jesus is not going into the wilderness because he failed. Rather, he is going into the wilderness because Adam and Israel and we all have failed. Jesus goes into the wilderness to begin to undo uh, the damage that sin has caused, all of the deadly consequences of sin. That is, that is his mission as the son of God, to undo what Adam and Israel and we have brought into this world. And like Adam and like Israel and like us, Jesus will be tested. He will face temptation. Will he succeed or will he fail? That's the tension that Luke is ratcheting up in this moment. The stakes are high. Another son of God appears, Uh, the unique son of God, the promised son of God. Will he resist under temptation? How much can he take? And so in this passage, Jesus is going to face three distinct trials and, and temptations. The word, uh, the devil, by the way, it, it, in Greek, it literally means slanderer. It means accuser. 
In Hebrew, uh, it's it's a proper name, Satan. Um, And so this encounter is between Jesus and a, a personal spiritual being called the devil. This is the same personal being that tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. We're not told much about what this encounter actually was like, whether Jesus you know, saw a physical form of Satan, whether it was, he was just present in his conscience. If, if you look at some medieval paintings of the devil, he's not appearing as like, you know, someone who's red and fiery and, and frightening, but he's, he's a beautiful, almost angelic-looking man. We don't really need to speculate here. All we need to really understand is that this is a genuine encounter between Jesus and Satan. This is a sincere and real time of testing and temptation. And again, we're going to see that Jesus, the Savior of the world, come to undo sin and the effects of sin in our world. He's going to be tested in these three particular ways, ways that are actually very common in the history of the world. Adam and Eve and Israel face these temptations, and we continue to face them today. There's different ways that you could divide these three temptations. Uh, a guy named R- uh, J.C. Ryle in the 19th century, I think he, he, he did a good way of doing it, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to borrow some of his language here. But uh, this is our outline for this afternoon, if you're into outlines. This is it. Jesus faced the test of unbelief, of worldliness, and of presumption, and he triumphed for you. Jesus faced the test of unbelief, of worldliness, and of presumption, and he triumphed for you. So first, the test of unbelief. Again, Jesus has just come out of this wonderful uh, moment with his father, uh, the baptism, the Holy Spirit, his power and his presence with him in a unique way, God's approval of Jesus. Things are going great. And then the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. (laughs) This doesn't seem like it's fitting. I think that that we often think of times of testing and trial as contrary to God's plans as opposed to parts of God's plan. Uh, We think that these are inconveniences, they're they're roadblocks, they're things that cannot possibly do us any good when, in fact, we see Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit being led by that Spirit into the desert to be tempted and tried. Biblical writers have different ways of of reckoning with this reality. In James chapter 1, James writes to a Christian church, and he says, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or perseverance. Trials and temptations, they're meant by God to do something to us. In Hebrews chapter 4, referring to Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, although he was a son, Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. According to Jesus' human nature, Temptation, trial, suffering, it had a formative role. It shaped him in ways that God wanted. Again, this is, this is a matter of faith for many of us who are struggling, who, who came in this afternoon with different things weighing on us. Times of temptation aren't contrary to God's plan, but they're part of it. Again, we would rather avoid difficulties. We think it'd be better, God would love us more if he just let us skip over them. But in God's wisdom, in his care for his people, he has always brought trials and temptations to them. Here we see that Jesus is led to fast from food, abstain from eating anything for 40 days. And this, for for Bible readers, for people familiar, when they read the story, they think of characters like Moses and Elijah, who also underwent 40 days of fasting uh, before they um, went into the task that God had assigned for them. The, The 40 days also remind us of the 40 years that Israel spent living in the wilderness. And in verse three, understatement of the century, uh, Jesus was very hungry. He was very hungry after these 40 days. 
And it's at this low point, at this weak moment for Jesus, that the devil comes. I think that's often when temptation and trial will come for us, uh, when we are at our lowest. And this is what the devil says to Jesus. If you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. This is what he's saying to Jesus. Jesus, if you're really the beloved son of God, if God is so well pleased with you, why would he let you go hungry? Why, why would God make you, make you wait for food? Why would God let you be so uncomfortable as you are now? God led you out into the wilderness, but look, Jesus, this isn't good for you. Act. Get what you need. This first test I'm calling, or J.C. Ryle called, the test of unbelief. Satan is testing Jesus' faith in God's goodness, in God's care for him. This is actually the same kind of test that Adam faced in the garden. Uh, This is the test that Israel faced while they were in the wilderness. Adam and Israel, they both believed the lie of Satan, that God would not or could not care for them and provide them what they needed, that God was withholding some sort of goodness from them when they most needed it. And so they just, they reached out and they took what they thought they needed in that moment. But we see here that Jesus is different from both Adam and Israel. And he responds to Satan, quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, something that both, uh, that that Israel ought to have done. And this is what he says in verse four. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Man shall not live by bread alone. Another way that you could translate one paraphrase says it this way. It takes more than bread to really live. It takes more than bread to really live. Jesus believes in the goodness and care of his father. He believes that the only place where ultimate goodness and life is available now and forever is in the care and provision of the father and nowhere else. And so this, this is being pushed back to us now. Do we believe that a life lived in obedience and trust to God the father is the only way to life now and forever? Do we believe that in our bones? Do we believe that really it takes more than bread to live. See, many of us are ambitious for various things in this world. We have things that we want to achieve or accomplish or attain. And this could be a career, could be a spouse, could be a family, could be a measure of financial security in our life. There's, There's a mission, there's something that drives us on. What do you do when it seems like God is withholding those things from you? When they are escaping and eluding you? when you ache inwardly to have these things and you see God is not providing them for you. Will you believe God in that moment? Will you continue to trust in God's goodness and care for you even though your eyes can't see it in that moment? When you're feeling lonely and you want friendship, you want a spouse, when when illness and disease is breaking down your body and robbing you of good years, Jesus responds to this test of unbelief, to doubt God's own goodness. And he says, man shall not live by bread alone. And Jesus is telling us, he's telling Satan, God can be trusted. His care and his love for us is sure even in the wilderness. As we hunger, as we reach for things that we can't have right now, God is for us. He's with us. He will give us what we need in his own time. Again, this is a test that both Adam and Israel and we often fail. We often struggle to believe, but Jesus passed the test of unbelief. The second test is the test of worldliness, the test of worldliness. Look at verses five through eight. The devil 
takes Jesus up in some way and, and, and shows him the kingdoms of the world, gives him a panoramic shot of all of the power and the wealth and the glory and the kingdoms of all the planet and all the peoples. And all of these, Satan offers to give to Jesus. This is a dubious claim. You don't really need to trust when the, when the devil says something. He, he's a liar, so take it with a grain of salt. But he, he offers all of these things to Jesus, and he offers them at the low, low price of service to Satan, of worshiping or serving him. Now, we don't need to conjure up ideas of, of what worshiping Satan meant here. Uh, often, you know, we tend to think of uh, satanic symbols, black robes, torches, or whatever. But this idea of worship in the Bible carries with it the idea of service, uh, service, being a servant. When you're a servant, you don't do things the way that you want them done. You do things the way that the person who is in charge wants them done. And so Jesus is being offered by the devil uh, limitless power and influence and wealth and glory if you will simply do things the way that the devil wants them done instead of the way that God wants them done. Saying, don't do things the way that God instructs you to. Do them a different way. And incidentally, God has already promised to Jesus uh, the, the power and the glory of all the nations. Jesus has come to be the savior of the world, and one day he will receive all of these things. Uh, in the book of Revelations, the last book of the Bible, there, there's a, a glimpse, a vision of, of the future day when this will happen. And John, who's writing uh, the book of Revelation, he says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, that being Christ, to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That's the promise, something that will happen to Jesus. But for Jesus to get there, he must do things the way that God has commanded. He must follow the road that his father has ordained. And as Jesus knows, that road is very difficult. God assigns a particular road for Jesus, not of ease, but of sacrifice and service for others. For Jesus, the cross comes before the crown. Humility comes before honor. Uh, just uh, Jesus must condescend to, to the dust of earth before he can ascend into the glory of heaven. To gain his life, Jesus must first lose it. And so the devil comes and he offers an easier way to that glory, a quicker and a lighter path. Avoid the suffering of the cross, obey me, serve, serve me, do things the way that I want them done, and all of this can be yours right now. No need for humility, no need for service, no need for sacrifice. And this is actually the temptation, the test of worldliness that we all will face trying to get what we want in this life apart from the way that God has appointed for it to be received. Trying to get what you want in this life apart from the way that God has appointed to get it. Back in, back in the garden, back in paradise, Adam faced this test of worldliness. He, he was offered knowledge and insight. This is something that, that would have come to him eventually. These aren't bad things to want, a particular kind of knowledge and, and wisdom. But they weren't for Adam at that time. It was for some, some future time where, where Adam could get that. But instead of following God's way, he grasped for this, these things. Apart from God's instruction, apart from obedience to God, Adam reached out for these things, and he was cursed because of it. Israel wanted safety. They wanted security. They wanted wealth in their land. Again, these aren't bad things in themselves, but they sought them in their own strength, in their own time, instead of tra trusting in God's timing and God's provision. And this is the question for us. 
will you grasp, even for good things, apart from, apart from God, uh, obedience to God? Will you chase after even good things in ways that God forbids? Will you seek a high status, uh, coveted career, though it means that you will neglect your family, you will neglect your faith? Will you seek financial security and stability, though it means that you fail to be generous to those most in need? Will you grasp after relationships and friendships uh, for comfort and companionship, even though God may disapprove of these relationships? See, the, the lie in the test of worldliness is that, is that you can achieve and you can grasp goodness and blessing apart from service and obedience to God, that these things are possible for us apart from obedience to God. But this is simply untrue. It's, it's a lie. Um, in, in, in Mark, Jesus is quoted, quoted as saying this, um, what does profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What, what, what does it profit someone to gain all the things they want and yet lose their soul, lose what's most important? See, both Adam and Israel failed this test of worldliness, but Jesus' answer to Satan's temptation is a simple quote from Deuteronomy again. Look at verse eight. Jesus says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only will you serve. See, it takes more than bread to really live. And apart from the life and love of God, there is no opportunity for ultimate blessing and goodness. Both Adam and Israel and we have failed. We have reached out for things in ways that God has forbid. But Jesus passed the test of worldliness. Third test, the test of presumption. The test of presumption. Presumption is, is, is acting or thinking or believing that something is true when we, you know, we're really not sure uh, of it. Um, it's charging ahead with, with inadequate or incomplete information and just kind of assuming everything's going to be all right in the end. It's, like, it's the kiddo who uh, you know, eats the entire cookie jar because you know, his mom or dad said, you can have a few. And he's like, well, didn't, didn't give me an exact number, so I'm just going to go for it and see what happens. All right? Presumption just acts. It doesn't take time to consider. It doesn't weigh, you know, um, weigh the words. It just, it just acts impulsively. And if you look at this third temptation in verse 9, we see that the devil takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple in old Jerusalem, and he sets up this test, uh, verses 9 through 11. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Satan knows his Bible. This is a quote from Psalm 91. This is a beautiful psalm, a psalm about God's provision and protection for his people. But if you're not familiar with Psalm 91, you know that it is not a psalm instructing faithful believers to throw themselves off of buildings to test God's care and provision for them. That's not what the psalm is about. And so Jesus responds to Satan, quoting from Deuteronomy yet again, and he says this, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Psalm 91 and, and many promises throughout the Bible uh, tell us that God cares for his people and will provide and protect for them. But there's a caveat. He will do so whether in life or in death. Whether we live or we die, God will care for us and he will protect us. Throughout the Bible, we see narratives of, of godly saints, men like Joseph, uh, people like Esther, who suffer, who undergo trials, God is with them, even in these trials. Um, the test of presumption then, the temptation for Jesus and for us is just to act without knowledge, 
to just plow ahead and do certain things, assuming that they'll turn out right in the end. And I think, I think Christians are often tempted to act presumptuously toward God. Sometimes we have some, some Bible verses in, in, in the back of our mind, verses about God's love or his kindness, perhaps verses about God's anger and his judgment. And it's kind of vague, but we use this somewhat weak foundation to excuse or to presume particular actions or beliefs that we think are, are just fine. Uh, I'll give you a couple examples of this is we drink more alcohol than we, we ought. And we have this background thought, well, Jesus turned water into wine, so it's, it's probably fine. Or we, um, we do particular things that we want to do, and we think, if God really loves me, he'd want me to be happy. Or we ignore or we dismiss certain parts of the Bible and we say, we, we, we have a belief that says, surely God isn't like this. Or, uh, you know, I'm, I'm too intelligent, I'm too cultured to believe this part of the Bible. This is the test of presumption, whether or not we will go on incomplete and inaccurate information, just plow along believing and acting in certain ways. In the garden, Satan tested Adam and Eve by muddling and misrepresenting God's word to them. And they acted on that to their own harm. In Israel, false prophets came up, uh, contradicting what God had said. And Israel believed these false prophets to their, to their harm. Presumptuous belief, presumptuous actions, they're not based on God's word. They're, they take liberties with it. They bend God's word. They squint at it to try to make it say what people want it to say. And the devil tempts and tests us to be presumptuous just as he did to Jesus. But again, where, where Adam and Eve where Israel, where we often fail, Jesus passed, Jesus stopped, he considered, he acted not on presumption, but on God's word. And so this is what we see. Jesus faced the test of unbelief, of worldliness, and of presumption. But this is the good news. He triumphed not just for himself, but he triumphed for you. Jesus passed these tests for you and for your salvation. Because of their unbelief, because of their worldliness and presumption, Adam and Eve were cast out of a paradise and into the wilderness. Because of unbelief and worldliness and presumption, Israel was barred from entering into the paradise of the promised land. And instead, they had to wander the wilderness for 40 years. And because of your unbelief and your worldliness and presumption, we often, we wander in the wilderness, dry and weary and exhausted, seeking life but not finding it. But this is the good news. Because of his love for you, Jesus Christ the new Adam, the true and better Israel, faced down the devil's trials and temptations, and he went into the wilderness for you. Jesus went into the wilderness for you to bring you into paradise. All of us who are weary, who, who, are, who are lost in the wilderness, who, who have believed these lies and failed at these trials and temptations, Jesus Christ comes out to us who are in the wilderness to bring us to paradise, to be with him. And so it is Jesus alone that we are to trust in the time of our trials. It is Jesus alone that we can trust to bring us safely into paradise because Jesus alone has been tested and shown to be sure and strong. Jesus was unbending. He was unyielding. He was unbreakable in the face of trial and temptation. And he did so for you. Jesus triumphed for us. Look at how uh, the section ends in verse 13. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. 
Again, the mission of God, why Jesus came to the earth, was to undo sin and all of the deadly consequences of sin in our world. And he accomplished this through his life, through instances that we read here, his trials and temptations, through his death, and through his resurrection and eventual ascension back into heaven. And this mission of Jesus for us, it'll be tested over and over again in Luke's gospel. Jesus will be tempted by the crowds. He'll be tempted by his opponents. He'll be tempted even by his own disciples to doubt God's goodness, to to grasp for things in ways that God forbids, to rush along apart from God's word, just assuming that things will be okay. But at the outset of Jesus's mission, before he has preached a sermon or healed a single solitary soul, before he has walked up the hill carrying a cross for us, his mettle has been proved. These temptations have stretched and pulled and twisted at Jesus, but Jesus did not break. Friends, when you face these trials and temptations, lean on Jesus, lean on him wholly, go to him, trust him. He will not break, he will not bend. Jesus faced these same temptations, unbelief, worldliness and presumption, and he triumphed for you. And so may you now trust that your temptations and your trials aren't contrary to God's plan, but they are part of it. May you trust always God's goodness and his love for you, even when good things seem to be so out of your reach. May you seek goodness and blessing from God, but only through service and obedience to him. May you slow down, and consider God's word first and build your whole life on what he says. And may you hold on to Jesus when you face trials and temptations of many kinds. When you are pressed down, know that Jesus Christ has triumphed and he's triumphed for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending your son. We confess to you our weakness, our inability to lead ourselves as we ought to. And so we thank you that you have sent Jesus to lead us and to identify with us. Father, would you have mercy on us in our weakness? Would you help us individually and collectively as a church to be people who who believe you, who seek goodness in you, who study your word, who know it well, who act and feel and believe in accordance with what you've said, Lord, thank you uh, for your kindness to us. Knowing that we were in the wilderness wasn't something that pleased you. And so you sent your son into the wilderness to bring us back. We praise you for that. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.